0: Hello everyone, welcome to um, the launch of Ali and Moolawi's report, public payroll expansion in Iraq. My name's Taif, I work at the LSE Middle East Centre and I'll be your chair tonight. Um, Before we start and I introduce the speakers to you, just a few um, housekeeping rules. So firstly, if everyone could switch their phones off or put them on silent. And also just to let you know that this event is being recorded and that if anybody is tweeting, the hashtag is hashtag LSCIraq. So with us tonight is Ali Al Moulawi, who is the head of research at Al-Bayyan Center for Planning and Studies, a public policy think tank based in Baghdad, where he specializes in institutional reform and foreign affairs. He's written extensively on public sector spending in combating corruption in Iraq. He holds a Master's of International Studies and Diplomacy from SOAS, um, and he'll be opening the event and speaking for 20 minutes. Um, we've also got, got with us uh, Alia Mubayed, who is an economist and former director of geoeconomics and Strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Previously, she worked as a chief economist for the MENA region at Barclays Bank in London. She has also worked at the World Bank as a senior economist responsible for research and policy dialogue covering several countries in Europe and Central Asia, and held policy responsibilities in various economic institutions of the government of Lebanon. She'll be speaking for 10 minutes as well. Um, And then finally, we have Toby Dodge, who is the Kuwait professor and director of the Kuwait program at the LSC Middle East Center. He's also a professor (coughs) in the Department of International Relations here. Toby currently serves as Iraq Research Director for the DFID-funded Conflict Research Programme, and from 2013 to 2018, Toby was the Director of the Middle East Centre. He has been visiting, researching and writing about Iraq for over 21 years, and his main areas of research include the comparative politics and historical uh, sociology of the Middle East, uh, the politics of intervention, the evolution of the Iraqi state, state-society dynamics, and political identities in Iraq. So he'll be speaking for 10 minutes, and then we'll have 50 minutes for discussion and Q&A. And so I will hand over to Ali.
1: Thank you. I'm going to stand. If you <clears throat> Thank you to everyone, thank you to the Middle East Center. Um, so, I'm going to speak about uh, payroll expansion. Um, very interesting topic. I know it sounds a little bit boring, but um, actually quite interesting. Uh, so, this is a combination of about a year of work um, on the growth of the public sector uh, in Iraq. Um, I'll start by offering an anecdote. I think it's always important to have an anecdote at the beginning. So, uh, an Iraqi friend of mine in Iraq. Uh, who works for, he's an engineer who works for state-owned enterprise, which um, uh, I'll explain what state-owned enterprises are in the future. But um, he decided that he wanted to quit his job. And the reason why is because he felt that uh, he was not excelling in his position, he wasn't developing a, a, as an individual, he wasn't being challenged. And what he decided to do was um, to look for work in the private sector. Um, and in fact, in the end, he managed to get a job um, for a Japanese uh, oil contracting firm, um, and he did very well. Uh, he went to Japan, he spent six months training there, went back to Iraq, uh, got a very good job, and, and did very well. In 2014, uh, the oil prices crashed, and the contracts began to uh, to dry up, and eventually he was let go. Um, and what that meant that he, has to, he had to look for jobs um, in the Iraqi private sector, and he really struggled. He tried to do startups; It didn't go very well. Uh, he tried to get his job back, his old job back, he, he couldn't do that. The, the reason why I bring this up is because it kind of illustrates uh, an important point about the public sector, the nature of the public sector itself, um, which is that if you're a young, educated individual in Iraq, um, ambitious as well, want want to do well, and you have the choice between an average public sector government job and um, a very well-paying p- private sector job, uh, it may be counterintuitive to think that actually uh, to, to choose, you know, the private sector job, but in fact, it's actually arguably more of a rational choice to make. And the reason is because of the nature of the, private, the public sector. The public sector, um, if you are in it, you're in it for life. It's a secure job. Um, you enjoy lots of benefits, including state uh, pension, um, you know, very good annual leave and so on. And there are very few instances where. Um, a public sector employee has actually been sacked. I mean, there are even cases where people have committed crimes and they still manage to retain their job. Whereas the private sector is obviously very unstable and the nature of Iraq's economy um, is highly dependent on fluctuations in oil prices. So, you know, moving beyond this anecdote, what does this report sort of really focus on? There are, the, the report really is not very groundbreaking, to be very honest with you. What it does is it, um, it tries to measure Um, a phenomenon that we all know exists, which is this vast expansion of um, the public payroll in Iraq. Um, And it does that by looking at actual figures um, in the federal budget, and other reports, government reports that um, aren't made public. And uh, I think there are four main, um, really, findings that I'd like to allude to today. The first is that um, the growth of the public payroll is commensurate with fluctuations in oil prices. So what you see is, um, particularly once oil prices really started to skyrocket back in uh, 2007, 2008, and um, all the way until 2013, uh, that um, the payroll began to ex- expand tremendously. And then it actually started to contract slightly once oil prices started to crash, and there was a hiring freeze, which I'll talk about. Now, in terms of numbers, um, there's been a threefold increase in the number of uh, public sector employees between 2003 and and, and today, Um, arguably arguably more. um, But um, what's more worrying is this ninefold increase in the size of the public payroll. Uh, One of the reasons is because in 2005 – or 2004, I believe, uh, a new pay scale was instituted where um, public sector salaries um, increased tremendously and really – Outbid those salaries that exist in the private sector. Um, and generally, we can say that um, in terms of total expenditure, the public uh, wage bill represents around about 30%, which is a huge amount, actually. I mean, even compared to other countries of the Middle East. The third point is on state owned enterprises, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. But for me, I, and I describe them as a black hole, they're self financing entities. Uh, supposed to be self-financing. Um, they're owned by the state, they're linked to various ministries um, in the state. Um, they expend huge amounts of, of budget uh, with very little producti- productivity, um, with the exception of a few. So for example, um, uh, state oil companies That are considered SOEs, they are very productive, obviously, Um, but then you have all companies within the electricity sector, within the Ministry of Industry, that are highly unproductive, and yet they are continuously financed by the state. They rack up huge amounts of debt, and the problem is that we actually don't know the size of that debt. So the the reason is because the SOEs are not incorporated into the federal budget because they are assumed to be um, self-financing entities. In in, in reality, they are not actually. I'll touch a little bit about SOEs uh, further down the line. The, the, first po- the fourth point to kind of highlight is this issue of hiring freeze. So as I mentioned, in 2015, once oil prices crashed, the government was, was faced with really a reality, which was that it couldn't continue to expand uh, the, the public sector. And it instituted a partial hiring freeze. Um, but more importantly, once oil prices began to bounce back in 2018, um, things really began to, to reverse. So Um, As I'll talk about later on, the 2019 budget actually hugely increases the size of the the payroll. It goes back to previous policies of of spending. So uh, SOEs, um, what are they, how do they work? Uh, As I said, there's very little data on this, um, at least publicly available data. Um, What I've I've managed to gather is that um, back in 2013, there were about 176 um, SOEs, uh, spread across fourteen ministries, and in terms of number of employees um, in two thousand and ten they were estimated to be around six hundred and thirty three thousand huge amount I mean if you compare um, that to the overall size of uh, the public sector we 're talking um, salaried permanent employees around three million so you know it 's a huge proportion of, of that um, and you know like the likelihood is that that has expanded even more um, since two thousand and ten Another report suggested that of Um, Those 176, it took just 136 of those SOEs, and it found that um, spending on them uh, amounted to over $31 billion, huge amount. I mean, that's pretty much a third of the overall budget in in Iraq. Um, Bear in mind, again, just to reiterate, a lot of these are just unproductive, um, so a lot of waste going on there. And then, um, again, to illustrate this point. So within the manufacturing sector, the SOEs linked to that that sector, they've generated – approximately $10 billion of debt, and yet they contribute almost nothing to, to the GDP. Now, fast forward a little bit. We talked about this hiring freeze, which um, happened between 2015 to 2018. That was really a response to the reality, which was, as I said, government couldn't pay um, for, for, for an increase in, uh, in the public sector. Uh, when oil prices bounced back, the government reverted to the old um, policy, which was to increase, continue to increase the, the size of that sector. Um, and so, in the 2019 budget, we saw a 27% increase in overall expenditure. And ironically, um, that also included, included uh, increasing in spending for the security services, despite the fact that the war had, had ended. So, a huge budget increases for uh, the Ministry of Defence, uh, Interior, and also the Popular Mobilisation Forces. Um, and Overall, what we saw was about 50,000 or so um, new employees added to the public payroll, um, which is really a huge amount, given that actually oil prices, I mean, they'd recovered, but they hadn't recovered significantly. And then an interesting phenomenon that um, emerged in 2019 was this issue of contractors. So there are three tiers of employees, uh, government employees. There are permanent employees who have permanent salaries, who enjoy you know, all the benefits uh, that come with that. And then there are contractors. So there are thousands upon thousands of contractors who, um, you know, their contracts aren't permanent, they don't enjoy state um, pensions and other benefits, but there are many of them out there. And then the third tier are uh, daily wage earners who really don't have very many rights. What happened in the beginning of 2019 was this emergence of a trend whereby contractors were calling on the government to transfer their their status to permanent um, uh, employment, and we saw this particularly in the Ministry of Electricity, where about um, 33,000 contractors were given uh, full-time permanent status, Um, and what this led to actually was, other contractors from other state agencies calling for similar treatment. So we saw, for example, in the Electoral uh, Commission, we saw amongst teachers, uh, amongst others who work in, in, in the government sector, calling for um, similar rights. And, and the government almost gave in to it – I mean, the reason why it didn't um, fully give in to it is because it just didn't have enough in the, in the budget to do that. But um, it made pledges um, alluding to the fact that it would in the future. And for me, this is a very worrying trend. I mean. With the electricity ministry, the, the message, I guess, that the ministry was trying to send was that it was investing seriously in the power sector, that um, it, um, it regarded its employees with high regard, and that that was why it was rewarding them with, um, with, these, um, uh, with this sort of employment. But um, it does beg the question, is it sustainable? And for me, that's one of the big issues um, that I try to allude to in this report, is are these trends really sustainable uh, over the long term? what does this all mean for the, the reform prospects? So I think it's important to try to link this back to what's happening now. I mean, a lot of this um, research was done uh, last year during the summer, and I think things were a little bit different back then. Um, so country had stabilized somewhat, people felt like um, the country was turning around after four years of very difficult um, uh, conflict um, with ISIS. And um, what happened then was that uh, a new government came to power and uh, kind of really assumed um, these sorts of policies that uh, previous governments had um, also assumed in the past. Uh, and, and for me, I think employment is a huge part of what we're seeing now in terms of the difficulties in the, in the public sector and in terms of uh, demands of protesters. So I recall – I'm sure many of you who follow Iraq very closely – a few days before you know, the protests really emerged on the 1st of October. There were very small protests happening in Baghdad, and they were all um, focused on uh, employment. So, young graduates who had postgraduate degrees were calling on the government um, to provide them with a government job, and for them it was considered their right. and 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 Rightfully so, because many of them consider themselves uh, high achievers. They work very hard to get their degrees. And given that, you know, the, there are lots of other people who have been hired into the government that have very uh, less qualifications than them, they figured that it was their right to uh, to demand that. And I thought it was very interesting that this type of protest existed because, number one, there's a very specific demand here. Uh, so it's not like calling for an improvement to services. Very hard to measure. With jobs, you know, you either have a job or you you don't. And number two, the kind of people that were calling for these demands were highly educated, able to voice their views, uh, had good social networks, and so on. And for me, looking at those small protests that existed um, towards the end of September, for me, I thought, well, these people aren't going to go away anytime soon. I mean, they have a very clear demand, and they seem very uh, determined to get that. And then what we saw later on, a week later, in fact, was that those demands merged with even bigger demands. And of course, the government crackdown led to really an explosion um, in in popular unrest. And we know where we are now. Um, But the the point I think I'd like to make is that there are very few short-term solutions to this issue of employment. Uh, You know, over the last two months, the government has been trying to hire new uh, graduates as a way to placate um, protests. And um, you know, it may work to a degree, but there's no way that the government can continue to absorb huge levels of, of, of unemployment. And for me, I think the only way is to really try to grow the private sector. The, the private sector is the only way that um, the country can absorb, you know, really uh, th- this youth bulge that exists in, in the country. Um, I mean, some people would say that there are almost 800,000 people um, entering the labor market every year. We have huge um, – population growth in, in, in Iraq. Um, up to a million people added to the population every single year. And there is no way that the, the private, the public sector can um, can find jobs for all these people. The, the second point is the issue of patronage, which I haven't really talked about here. It's in the report. I'm sure Professor Dodge has a lot to say about this. But a lot of this issue of expanding payroll is linked to patronage networks. Um, so it's one of the key ways um, for, the ruling elite to establish their networks um, <coughs> by hiring people um, that are linked to them politically or in other ways, and also particularly in terms of the senior levels of, of government so we 're talking about dgs director generals, advisors, deputy ministers these are all political appointees, um, almost entirely linked to uh, to the ruling elite and i don 't see how you know, these patronage networks are going to break up anytime soon in spite of all that we've seen um, over the last two months. Um, I've always mentioned this, the investment in the private sector, I think, um, you know, with huge levels of unemployment. By the way, we don't actually know how high unemployment is in Iraq. One of the issues we have is how to measure unemployment. We – there are all sorts of figures banded around. Um, officially, it's roughly around 16 percent, but youth unemployment is probably over 30 percent. Um, but there's really no clear um, uh, sort of credible st- statistics on this. Um, the final point I would add is on public financial management reform. So one of the ways to really target wasteful spending, I think, is to really push for greater transparency. The cynics amongst you would say, well, it's not possible because um, you know the way that Iraq is constructed, the political elite, the, the sort of um, the, the arrangement that exists makes these sort of things very difficult to achieve because they directly um, undermine vested interests. Uh, what, what I do think is possible is, for example, with SOEs, um, to undertake um, some degree of transparency to at least know where we are with SOEs, how many people work for SOEs, how much um, debt they're accumulating, and that may offer some way to try to reform them in the future. I'm at the moment pessimistic, um, but I think um, greater transparency always helps, particularly if you're a a policymaker in Iraq or you're working on uh, development in the country. So I'll probably stop there, um, probably have a lot more time to talk about other things, but um, I think it's important to really try to link this into what's happening now. Um, And as I said, I mean, employment is something that all Iraqis worry about across the board. It cuts ethno-sectarian barriers. Um, it doesn't just affect young people; it affects um, people who are much older as well. And um, you know, I, I'm hoping that you know, th- this report will just at least form the basis for further discussion uh, on this issue. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Um, and now over to
0: Alia.
2: Sure. Um, Thank you very much for the invitation and it's a great pleasure to be with uh, Ali and Professor Dodge again. Um, and I think I would like to to actually start from uh, from from uh, the, exactly the topic that Ali is talking about Bec- um, because what what I'll be focusing on in my ten minutes sh- is try to to look at what are some of the key constraints to uh, to growth and um, on job creation uh, in in Iraq. And what should be the next agenda? And trying maybe reflect together on on why, why this agenda uh, has not um, has not moved for, uh, forward. But it is very clear. Um, any analysis uh, uh, done, economic analysis done on Iraq, actually um, puts that um, gets to the conclusion that the big elephant in the room is actually the public sector, and that without. Basically, reforming the public sector, uh, which is epitomised, obviously, or or, or uh, um, measured by uh, by the public payroll, uh, um, has become clearly unsustainable, and has, and while in the short term it has served very well, uh, the objective of absorbing much of the um, uh, young people or uh, the demand for jobs in uh, probably unproductive type of activities in the public sector, but that this model uh, is running its course because uh, Iraq could actually be facing, uh, if it continues um, uh, on that front, unsustainable public finances uh, in the next five or, or, or ten years, given its demographics. Uh, and therefore, um, so this opportunity or this driver of uh, uh, or provider of jobs has become now a major obstacle actually uh, to the type of growth and jobs that uh, those on the street today in Iraq are aspiring for and that is more uh, productive high value added uh, commensurate with the type of skills and experiences that they want um, so so I think anyway we have to to um, uh, um, Uh, design a a growth and and job-creating reform program for uh, for Iraq in the next next, uh, few years, we will have uh, to have part of it, uh, and a key component of it, the public sector uh, and, and public finance reform. Um, Just to to get a sense of that, I mean, today, uh, the Iraqi economy, maybe now, after many uh, years uh, of uh, struggling uh, post-oil shock, uh, uh, post-war with ISIS, is only now starting to recover with uh, um, relatively uh, three, four-percentage, Uh, 4 percent growth of GDP, clearly much uh, um, above the average that we are seeing in the rest of the region. But uh, according to the IMF and the World Bank estimates, uh, for Iraq to uh, provide the type of uh, sustainable economic activity that is conducive to keeping the level of unemployment, which again, we don't know where it is, but relatively high, as Ali said, at its current level, needs at least 5 to 6 percent uh, uh, of, uh, of growth and we 're still really uh, uh, um, sub uh, sub that amount, which means that if it if we continue um, uh, in this growth model, largely relying on public investments and and as I mentioned um, relatively unproductive uh, type of investments, then we will we, we are falling short of the uh, level of growth needed for uh, sustainable job creation. Uh, but I think also uh, the kind of uh, uh, growth that is uh, um, uh, generated by this model um, is actually um, because it has not been able to deliver the kind of services that is needed in in a post crisis environment uh, has been seeing um, has been showing signs that this recovery is actually much below what we have seen in other countries that that, that are recovering post a, a reconstruction or post uh, conflict and therefore. That's another reason why as we think about reforming the public sector we will have to to think of a, a way to restructure uh, the, uh, the public sector along at least uh, three lines one make it more fiscally sustainable uh, today um, the uh, uh, wage to GDP is around 12 percent or around 30 uh, or 40 of, percent uh, uh, of expenditure absorbs 50 percent of revenues. And I think this calculation actually does not take into consideration this SO, the SOEs. Yeah. So if I want to add what what Ali has been t- uh, talking about, then the, the, uh, uh, then we, we we are really talking about more alarming gravel. Uh, uh, this uh, uh, this is very high compared to other emerging markets. But I think the silver lining uh, that Iraq ha- has and the opportunity lies in the fact that um, the wedge between public sector um, wages and private sector wages is actually not very large. Um, uh, Particularly when you compare this uh, to other uh, oil exporting countries in the region, where the uh, b- very big difference between uh, high uh, public sector uh, wage bill and lower uh, private sector wage bill has continued to fuel demand uh, for for getting employed in the public sector, and so this is an opportunity for the Iraqi government because uh, um, its ability to uh, to reform its public sector is still within reach in the sense that uh, that this wedge is actually um, uh, uh, in favour. Of, uh, of a reform path uh, that could uh, uh, um, uh, make make uh, the public sector uh, more fiscally sustainable. The second um, uh, principle that should uh, govern this uh, this reform of the public sector is that it should be focused on service delivery. Again, um, as as we know, uh, Iraq. Uh, uh, will need to undertake a uh, functionary view, uh, large public sector, a huge amount of uh, um, state-owned enterprises that may not be needed for uh, a diversified economy. And this is why, as part of this reform of the public sector, a, uh, a functionary view of, and the, of the role of the state that the Iraq needs uh, for the future is, um, uh, is needed. And and third uh, principle is that we need to to move towards a more efficient, i.e. where the pay is related to performance and to productivity and not just basically um, wage increases uh, are just driven by uh, political uh, uh, um, emergency situation as we have seen in 2018 and 2019. Um, but obviously that is not uh, not enough. I think uh, uh, wherever we, we, we need to put and render the public sector, uh, um, uh, reduce it in terms of an op- being an obstacle to growth, we need also to make sure that this public sector uh, reform policies are accompanied. By other types of uh, of uh, of reforms, and I would cite at least uh, three that touch upon what ali has 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 talked about The, f- the, the, second, the first is um, really the uh, uh, way uh, the, the, um, the public uh, the, uh, the private sector development agenda starting by making the business environment uh, in Iraq, much more conducive to private investment. Today, if we look at what drives growth in Iraq, it's really uh, uh, public investment in infrastructure, in roads, in electricity, very much this year. There's very limited contribution of private investment, and that is much linked to very uh, high levels of uh, red tapes, uh, uh, corruption, corruption, uh, um, uh, Uh, lack of a contestable uh, uh, public-private partnership framework, Uh, um, digitization of many of the public services can significantly improve uh, the um, uh, investment environment. Uh, So so this uh, gamut of, of reform needs to go hand in hand in the restructuring of the public sector. Uh, the second area of reform that is uh, importantly uh, and uh, very much needed in, in Iraq, because we have a very uh, limited um, uh, financial inclusion uh, uh, in Iraq, and um, whether at individual level or F- SME level, uh, level, there is a need to, um, uh, uh, to pursue um, aggressively a financial sector reform. Over the last uh, uh, few years, uh, the, um, uh, uh, and despite various attempts at financial sector uh, reforms, uh, uh, um, still a lot needs to be done in order to prove uh, to, to to boost private sector access to credit and, uh, uh, and basically improve the corporate uh, governance of uh, uh, state-owned banks, uh, improve uh, the whole infrastructure for. Uh, 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 a private sector credit like credit bureaus and and uh, and microfinance etc so this is also a big uh, 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 sector that needs to be uh, 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 to be pursued um, a a um, of uh, launch these reforms and accelerate them in order to complement the type of reforms that Ali uh, uh, has been um, proning for um, – uh, um, um, p- suggesting uh, in, in his report. And finally, because any public sector-related uh, uh, reform will result, obviously, in downsizing and restructuring and will result in loss of jobs, there is a very important need to accompany these policies of public sector restructuring with a very solid social safety nets that can absorb uh, and mitigate uh, the impact of uh, public sector reform. Um, obviously, uh, through either expanding some of these uh, public uh, uh, sector uh, safety nets with their pension improving uh, their targeting uh, um, because the existing ones uh, actually still are skewed towards those who can – not necessarily uh, uh, towards those who are most vulnerable. Uh, So this reform is – should go hand in hand with um, any – uh, public sector reform um, and, uh, and public uh, uh, state-owned e- uh, enterprises restructuring that uh, that is needed and that uh, Ali's report is, uh, is recommending. Uh, so any uh, fiscal space that you could gain through this public sector restructuring should be channeled toward expanding, uh, um, improving pension and expanding these uh, social safety nets. I'll stop here and we can discuss even more later. Okay.
0: Thanks
3: so much, Um, and I'll hand it over to you now, Toby. Excellent. Well, I only want to do uh, three brief things tonight. Firstly, just touch upon what Ali's raised, which is the underlying dynamics of, of politically sanctioned corruption in Iraq. Then secondly, link that corruption to the political system itself put in place after 2003, and then finally detail why that has driven the protesters and where they've gone. But I think first, um, what we should do is give praise to Ali's report. I think uh, getting hard data out of the Iraqi government and bringing it to an international audience is no mean feat. And I think he's done a superb job. And I I just wanted to restate a couple of uh, figures that he has on page eight and nine of the report. Firstly, public, inspector, public uh, sector uh, employment is estimated to have grown from 1.2 million uh, just after 2003 to 3 million. But I think the other thing on page nine is that, the, the, as Ali calls it, employment compensation, the payroll bill has gone from 2005 uh, in 40, 3.8 billion to 36 billion in in 14 years and keep in mind that that the figure cited in 2005 was at the beginning of the transformation uh, of governments through elections first let me just cast your mind back to july 2019 where the weather is a bit better in britain but a bit (coughs) worse in iraq when the national democratic institute carried out a series of polls across Iraq and it th- and it found that three out of four Iraqis thought the country was heading in the wrong direction and the majority of the population saw the then government led by Adel Abdul Mahdi as ineffective at both a national and a local level so you had this grinding pessimism uh, not uh, just a year after uh, the national elections And the key concern of those polled was corruption. 82% of Iraqis were concerned or very concerned about corruption at the highest levels of government. And 83% of those uh, questioned believe corruption was getting worse. So corruption is the main worry of ordinary Iraqis. In 2018, Iraq was infamously ranked 168 out of 180 in Transparency International. In the run-up to the national elections of 2018, Iraq's Parliamentary Transparency Commission estimated that at least $320 billion of government funds had disappeared through corruption over the last 15 years. So um, over the summer and autumn, I I was a, a repeat visitor to Baghdad and I managed to carry out a series of confidential interviews with senior government ministries ministers who had been appointed in 2018 and they suggested that as much as 25 percent of their annual budget was misappropriated through contract fraud. So what Ali has outlined is what I would call um, wage fraud the expansion of the public sector payroll, not because of need, and primarily, I suspect, not because of demand, but because of political dynamics. And the second one, which takes probably more money, and obviously is much more difficult to document, is contract fraud. Now, where has this come from? Now, I would argue, and have repeatedly to the point where it probably bores people, that the political system put in place, the Mahasasa system put in place, Uh, uh, with the Iraqi Governing Council of 2003 and then every national election 2 in 2005, 2010, 2014, 2018 drives this corruption forward. Now, how does it do that? In the aftermath of each election, the winning parties come together in closed rooms and negotiate the division of government, government ministries amongst themselves. New ministers come in and then pack on Public sector payroll. They employ their friends, their followers, and their party members as a, as a vehicle for party political corruption. But secondly, the Wakala system, I think, is even more damaging. For example, after the 2018 elections, negotiations amongst these party bosses were not over ministry. Not only over ministries, but 800 senior civil servants jobs as Ali says director generals those in the private grades above uh, normal civil servants are paid much better but appointed through the wakala system appointed as representatives of the party bosses and it's these individuals that are responsible for contract fraud that contracts are struck uh, through four political dynamics Companies are given a lot of government money to fulfill functions, contracted functions, but never do or do so very poorly because they're protected either by these politically appointed senior civil servants or by the ministers who protect them. And that money, the money through fraudulent contract is then recycled through the political system, ties the political elite together, certainly enriches them, but funds... the uh, the political budgets of the parties and their ability to build networks through Iraq. So those are the two big things, the the employment fraud that Ali's been talking about, but the contract fraud. Now, this is no great secret. Every Iraqi knows it, but the point being that this has not only alienated the mass majority of the population from the governing elite, it's not only delivered institutional incoherence if the majority of the contracts that the government are striking are not being fulfilled or not being properly fulfilled because they're enriching party coffers and senior politicians and the state itself as we've seen it's failed in delivering reliable electricity or clean running water and it's this this anger at overt corruption and state incoherence that has driven the protest movement that we've seen started on the 1st of October and is going on today. Now, the big thing to keep in mind are these demonstrations aren't a one off, they aren't an explosion of outrage that hasn't happened before. From 2009 to 2011, demonstrations tended to happen in the summer months as a reaction to the government's ability, inability to deliver power and water, especially in the south. In 2015, after a young demonstrator was shot outside a power station in Basra, these demonstrations became, uh, reached a new peak, both in numbers, 50,000, 200,000, Falak Jabbar and the PC published for us estimated that in early September 2015, a million young people were on the streets of Baghdad protesting against the Mahasasa system, and we all remember the chant, The people have been robbed in the name of religion, directly linking the uh, the sectarian justification for government of national unity to the corruption that dominates the state. And from the 1st of October, as Ali was saying in the run-up to that in September, when I was in Baghdad, you had young graduates protesting outside the prime minister's office, being dispersed with very brutal tactics, water cannons, police, and then this explosion of young popular anger. Now, firstly, those demonstrations were shaped by what we've just discussed, the outrage at elite politically sanctioned corruption. But they've evolved, as we see with the banners hanging off the Turkish restaurant in Tahrir Square and the social media, into a thoroughgoing critique of the post-2003 sit- uh, system. A call for equal rights, a call for a secular nationalism, a call for the driving of the old party bosses out of power, new elections, new electoral laws and the United Nations supervision of elections. Now the cost in terms of the murder, and let's call it what it is, the murder of innocent civilian peaceful protesters up, estimated way above 300, which is the last UN estimate, up in the, uh, up in the 400s, with, I think, much <coughs> greater violence in the south of Iraq than in Baghdad, but equal violence in Baghdad, the use of snipers, tear gas canisters. I think that's indicative that the elite itself won't give up power, that they've dug in and they're trying to use tactically deployed violence to break the will of the demonstrators and to send them home. I think the events in Nazaria running up to Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani's Friday Pairs last Friday, which triggered the resignation of Adil Mahdi, were a much wider crackdown which was stopped by the Mahjir. So we're in a really, really perilous situation. The post-2003 ruling elite and the system that uh, has empowered it have run out of steam. It has no answers for the reform that both Ali and Alia have called for because that reform would threaten their grip on power. The population, as general opinion polling shows, and the drop-off at election turnout has turned their back on the system. Young people have come onto the streets in mass demonstrations and been murdered for the temerity of calling for change, but we're in a deadlock. The young people won't leave the streets, the ruling elite, won't reform the system and leave power. (laughs) I think that's where we are and it's incredibly perilous and I'll leave you with that thought. Thank
0: Thank you. you Okay, so we have this room till 7.30, so we've got around, let's say, 40 minutes um, for questions and then we'll need to pack up. So, first of all, if you have a question, can you wait for the microphone before you speak? Um, and what I'll do is I'll take three questions, we'll answer, then we'll go around again, OK? Um, OK, perfect.
4: Um, gentleman over here. Yes, hi. Well, thank you very much. Very interesting talk, Toby. Love to hear you talk again on a familiar theme and following on your excellent article, which I read, about expanding on your Mahasa stuff. Um, The title of the lecture is Reforming the Iraqi Economy, and yet we seem to have realized that actually the economic failures are a result, a sort of symptom of the political, underlying political and philosophical failures of the state, Um, which had me first of all thinking, is this a new specifically Iraqi problem or is this actually a regional problem uh, more widely spread? And, And what does that tell you about the sort of political culture of the region? don't know. Uh, but the other interesting, the, the, the real question is, if the current political system is not seen to be working, what is the alternative? Because what Toby alluded to uh, and indeed in his article is the lack of a barbarian state. There, there is no monopoly of violence. And as the Czech ambassador said to me when I was in charge in the South in 2007, he said, every militia has its political party. And until that is addressed, it seems to me that this corruption is going to keep going because the politicians are not representing the people, they're representing their militia. So how, in my simple-minded way, I think the only way I can see it establishing a sort of barbarian state with a monopoly of violence is if you get another big dictator with a bigger stick that can somehow corral all these independent sources of violence into one. And that sounds rather a horrible answer, but... You know, I look at the region and I think, well, actually, that's the way the region works. Look at what Sisi did in Egypt. And is that perhaps unpalatable, though it seems in liberal democratic England to say this, but is that perhaps the way that Iraq needs to go? Thanks. A thought. Uh,
0: anybody else? This, or the lady in the brown the then you? um I
5: don't know if I've missed something I haven't read the report yet but I was wondering do does the data in the report include Kurdistan region as well and do you see any differences and also how would you explain that let's say that demonstrations haven't spread to Kurdistan they are under the umbrella of Iraq, although Kurdistan is more autonomous but still you know corruption uh, we have that also in Kurdistan but We see no demonstrations there. How would you explain that?
6: Thank you very much for the three of you. It was very interesting. Uh, And my question is more directly to Ali and Alia. Uh, It's clear and there's no doubt that the public uh, employment uh, in the public sector is uh, bloated in Iraq, generally and uh, also with having a very high empl- unemployment rate as well. Uh, you too emphasize that by supporting and expansioning, uh, expansion of private sector that can change by shifting some employees or uh, people who wants to work in private sector. But I think we're dealing with a cultural uh, dilemma as well, because historically uh, graduates in Iraq were relying on public employment, and they still view private sector to be uh, uh, unsecured, and uh, there's no pension with many private uh, sectors. Uh, I have uh, colleagues working in private sectors. Um, They have brought the pension scheme into their organization, but uh, with a contract saying, if you work for us for over uh, 20, 25 years, then maybe um, uh, with your social contribution we can uh, you know, grant you a pension at the end. But usually what they do before that 20-25 years, they will sack the employees and then they will be actually getting nothing at the end. So, um, what suggestions and recommendation do you have to educate the people to gain that actually, um, I would say uh, gain belief in private sector and uh, what sort of education should be given to the public? Thank you. Uh,
0: before you answer, can I just say also? Can we have brief questions because there's loads of people, and it would be nice to get lots of questions. And the same to the panelists, brief answers, please. Apart from Tony, because I. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Quickly on the question of Kurdistan data. So the data does include Kurdistan because um, the employees for the KRG are incorporated into the federal budget. So there are roughly around 600,000 um, people under the uh, the KRG um, payroll. <coughs> that hasn't um, fluctuated at-, at all, really. Actually, that was an interesting thing that I found was that um, despite the oil drop. Um, after 2014, the numbers of uh, KRG employees actually stayed for uh, roughly the the, the same. Uh, I think the dynamics in Kurdistan are quite different as well. Um, So, you know, one obvious distinction is that um, the KRG went through a a very difficult um, fiscal crisis whereby it was actually unable to pay salaries of of employees. Um, The rest of Iraq hasn't got to that stage yet. Uh, I think if we continue down this path, and this may be one of the biggest shocks that we'll find, is that uh, the federal government will be unable to pay um, wages consistently to the, the rest of um, the public sector. And I think, you know, we saw what happened in KRG when that happened; it was, uh, you know, huge shock to the system, demonstrations and so on. Um, but but I do think the KRG system is a little bit different in, in, in many ways. The dynamics are are um, perhaps unique um, in that way. On the issue of how to um, you know, encourage people to enter the private sector. I mean, it's a huge um, challenge, and this is why I kind of refer to this anecdote, because here's someone who's very ambitious, um, actually very skilled, knows how to navigate himself um, through the private sector, and yet uh, ultimately got into a lot of difficulties. Um, State pension, or some sort of pension, is definitely one of the issues. Uh, it's um, If you talk to people who are hesitant about going to the private sector, that's definitely one of them. Uh, I would add that even for public sector jobs, you do need at least 15 years of service before you're, you're offered um, uh, a state pension. Um, I mean, I'm, maybe Ali has more insight into the kind of ways to encourage people to uh, sort the, of the, the perks that could be offered um, to people entering the private sector. I think one of them is, is salary. I mean, uh, I, I think actually in, in, in many ways the private sector offers much more competitive salaries than the public sector, and because it's based on performance and merit, you can quickly climb up the ladder in a much better way than you can uh, with the public sector. Public sector in Iraq, um, there is some level of assessment of performance um it's called Kit- kitab Shukur, which as as people who have experienced this process know it's not really based on performance it's just based on you know, how close you are to to your senior to your line manager and whether you can convince them to get to give you a you know a, a, a thank you note uh on on the very difficult question to answer on um is there an alternative system i mean we hear this all the time you know uh, hierarchies you know really I mean, do they want democracy? Maybe an alternative system would be better for them. Look, we, I mean, we've we've gone through 40 years of, of dictatorship, and I think the legacy is is still very, very apparent. I mean, number one, you have families who are still alive today who have, have lost loved ones because of dictatorship. And I think for them, I mean, that's the red line. There's no way that they would think about um, some kind of strongman uh, alternative. Um, for those young people who didn't live through Saddam, um there is um sometimes you do hear this amongst young people that um that that, you know there is this nostalgia in fact that exists um amongst them despite the fact that they didn't live through those years um because perhaps they look to their neighbors people in the gulf for example where you have very stable um systems that are not democratic but very clear in terms of chain of command that are providing for their people and and you know, uh, for me personally, if you ask my opinion, I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I mean, the, the situation in the Gulf is very different um, uh, to Iraq. Uh, Iraq's demographics are entirely different as well. The the, the the diversity that exists in Iraq makes it extremely difficult to have um, you know one ruler who can govern all of Iraq um, uh, without any issues and. Uh, Personally, I think as a matter of principle as well, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. I think Iraq's in a very unique position in terms of its demographics, but I think the experience that it has um, uh, built up over the last 15 years, yes, many of it has been uh, highly problematic, but um, <coughs> at the same time, I think, um, you know, there are there, – for me at least, there is always hope that the democratic experiment can continue to be built upon and that um, if we can overcome some major obstacles, one of them being this whole patronage system that exists whereby political elite are essentially monopolizing um, uh, you know, the government, then you know, I do think that there is hope for um, far more pluralism and democracy in a country like Iraq. And I think young people um, have the appetite for it. You've seen the kinds of demands that um, young people have on the streets. Um, they're not calling for authoritarian forms of government. They're actually calling for accountability which is um, you know, starkly different to these sort of um, you know, regimes that exist outside of Iraq.
2: I mean, very quickly, just uh, follow up on this point before. Uh, I mean, even in, in the region, uh, I'm not sure that, that, that actually, authorita- under authoritarianism, uh, we will necessarily see economies thrive. I mean, uh, we have seen it in the past, and, and actually uh, talking to investors, the experience of the arab spring and what what happened actually makes people even more wary that a return of authoritarianism may, could make actually for another wave of instability and and egypt while obviously uh, i mean uh, since uh, the tra- uh, transition to power to um, president sisi obviously um, egypt has gone through major uh, uh reform structure reform stabilization under the imf program but on the issue of jobs and private sector-led uh, growth, this remains a major challenge for uh, for the Egyptian economy, and I think for uh, for uh, for the political uh, regime in place. Uh, and I think, um, I mean, I'm, uh, I mean, what is encouraging in Egypt is that there there is a very strong realization that this is a key challenge, and that that the reforms that are trying to be put in place. Hopefully, we'll go in that direction, but this is really, as uh, the IMF program has just ended this month, <laughs> uh, this is what uh, we, as external observers, uh, we, are, uh, uh, we are all um, bracing for. Um, but I think um, uh, uh, we have yet to see that evidence uh, uh, that authoritarianism can actually create a better uh, uh, thriving and job-creating private sector. Um, and again, I mean, on 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 the on the agenda for private sector reform, uh, the problem in Iraq is that the potential for it is very huge. Uh, um, I mean, Iraq needs uh, has a huge development needs that the public sector has proven unable to to provide for. I mean, the social services, the infrastructure services. Uh, so one could imagine that uh, that the potential for uh, uh, a private sector expansion and its ability to create jobs should be, uh, should be there, but again, there is uh, the, the legal, institutional, regulatory framework, but also the size and, 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 and uh, um, an approach to public sector uh, employment has not been uh, conducive, so you really need to, to, to address all these at, uh, these issues at the same time and not one without the other.
3: Very quickly, um, to, to think, I think Iraq is still a democracy. Although I pointed out I think that democratic turnout has, uh, electoral turnout has dropped from a high of 76 to 44, that still compares pretty well to America and other places, and we don't know the outcome of the elections. They're rough and ready. There's always complaint, but they're not fixed, I think. So that, that would be the first big thing, but the Iraqi system, is comparable to the Lebanese system and comparable to the Belgium system. So if we were looking for cultural affinities, it would be uh, what in my political science has consociationalism, the division, the deliberate division of government structures through post grand bargains, through post election negotiation. So, and when we look at um, the demonstrators on the the street, they've got an amazingly coherent reform program about how to reform the elections. And I think there is, although there is great corruption and violence, if you look at Iraq's ruling elite, as I, uh, to my cost, uh, uh, some time ago, if you call, if you suggest that their commitment to uh, democracy is, is anything less than, than pure, they get very hostile, they believe themselves, in fact, their only legitimizing role is for the removal of the 35 years of Bath's tyranny. So I think there is, a, across the board, a, a kind of normative commitment to democracy, it's getting the system right. But On Kurdistan, and Ali, I'm sure, will um, uh, correct me. My understanding is that as a percentage of the population, there is as high, if not a higher percentage, on the public payroll in Kurdistan than there is in Iraq. And of course, we all know, much the same as South Central Iraq, uh, the Kurdish system has payroll corruption, it's using the payroll for a very similar way, and it has contract fraud. It's just lasted a lot longer from 1991, 1992, and there have been mass demonstrations against it. Why there aren't at the moment? We put dot, 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 let's watch the space, but if there isn't any in this cycle, it may well be for the incredibly effective secret service that the Kurdish area has.
1: Oh, hi. Yeah, I don't know what you want people to introduce, but I will introduce. Uh, uh, my name is Bill Law, and with Arab Digest. Uh, my uh, my question is really about uh, uh, what is going on elsewhere. We're seeing the similar kinds of protests in Lebanon, in Algeria. Uh, of course, the protests in Iran have been savagely repressed, but I'm wondering to what extent the direction of travel of protests, street protest, street protests, in Iraq is influenced and affected by protests elsewhere in the MENA region. Thank you. Uh,
7: Thank you. Just expanding on the previous questions and the responses from the platform, uh, many academics like yourselves have come to the conclusion that, and taking regionally, not just Iraq, that both Iraq and Syria uh, failed states, as the late Farhad Jabbar stated about three, four years ago, I think in this very building, and he also mentioned Baath, which I take it as the common denominator, and the legacy of that who is still suffering from it. So, what is your conclusion and recommendation for a solution of the not only Iraq but the region? Uh, don't you think that it is time for the United Nations to intervene uh, in the region, e- even if it meant uh, transition period of a mandate or whatever, because we are, t- believe it uh, whether you agree or not, we are on the eve of a further bloody uh, civil war in Iraq and as you said the government doesn't give up and the people are not going to give, give up after all these sacrifices and why should they so what is your opinion on that for the re- iraq the region doesn't if the two states are neighboring states are failed states, doesn't that automatically mean that the border between them needs modifying the Sykes-Biko of, of a century ago needs modifying and have an uh, enclave for the threatened people, the Yazidis, like we had last week's lecture, and the Christians, and, and so on. Because nobody is going to give up after these sacrifices. And we need a really uh, uh, a, a drastic, Solution to the powers that be. Uh, why can't the powers that be withdraw recognition from these bloody states? Be it Iraq, be it Syria, be it Iran, uh, because it's an interest to continue as it is. So, oh, the conspiracy theories would say that. So that, I like your opinion on that. Thank you.
0: Also, are there any ladies who want to ask a question? Okay. okay, so ina next, and then
8: you. And then.
9: Uh, I have two short questions, but before that, I wanted to take issue with something Ali said. Uh, so, I worked in the public sector in Iraq, and I think I thoroughly deserved all the kitab. Those, <laughs> <laughs> no. no. done for those. <laughs> uh, no, just uh, in one of your recommendations, you say um, one of the reforms uh, should be enacted by the kind of the formation of the federal public sector council, which is stipulated in the, uh, in the constitution. Uh, that recently, I think two weeks ago, they actually f- hastily formulated or uh, join this this council. Uh, but in light of the kind of the mahasasa uh, that's been discussed as well today, do you think that this council is going to actually achieve anything? And a second uh, quick question is um, uh, to Alia. So, Ali mentioned the, the public sector hiring freeze. Um, famously, this was kind of one of the uh, prerequisites or the prior actions for going into an IMF SBA agreement mm-hmm. and part of the World Bank reforms that uh, the government did for the public sector reforms. Uh, in light of the 2019 budget and now the 2020 budget that's being discussed, how do you think this kind of matches to the kind of uh, recommendations that IMF and the World Bank put together?
2: Thanks. we will just take those two and then Okay. Thank you very much. Um, Ali, I really like the report, and uh, what I also highly appreciate is that you sensitizes a bit uh for the mistake of overestimating party and like parties and patronage so you also speak in the report about uh, clientelism and how it's being sort of building or drawing on on individual susceptibility to being co-opted and here i wanted to ask you like where do you see like the current reports of tribal components being also played as a bargaining chip within the current protest movement how do you see like this very fractured tribal geometry is going to play out. Thank you.
10: Hi. Um, I'm conscious of a question overload, so I'll try to keep it um, brief. You mentioned the liquidation of um, the state-owned enterprises and as an economist, I'm kind of I'm also excited by the notion of privatization and it does frustrate me, the inflated bureaucracy. Um, but obviously looking at um, kind of the Latin American example or even Iraq immediately as the Americans came, um, where there's these privatization experiments, a lot of what you see is that Um, the elite bureaucrats kind of just translate into elite private interests so what happens is people take advantage of the privatization and you get the same exact trend but just under a different name and so a lot of the kind of theorists come out and say it's it's more about kind of a structural change in the bureaucracy barbarian um, bureaucracy as toby mentioned um, rather than the kind of immediate economic changes so um, how do you respond to that
1: Um, So, on the issue of failed states and solution for the Middle East, I mean, I have a hard time figuring out what what to do about Iraq. So it would be very difficult for me to give you some sort of of solution for for the whole region. Um, You know, I I really don't have any answers for that. But uh, in terms of Iraq, I mean, I think you have to take piecemeal actions. I mean, it's very difficult to overhaul a system overnight um, unless it just happens by sheer force. Uh, and so the only option you have really is to take – is to break up, you know, the country, look at where the issues are, and then try to, you know, uh, fix them. Um, but I think, as I said in presentation, I mean, the, the solutions are really long-term. I don't really see any Band-Aid solutions to, to Iraq. Mohamed, um, you're, of course, um, very well deserving of all of your – recognition. Um, Your question was on the Federal Public Council. So I was thinking about this today actually. So, you know, you're right, the the council was formed recently. Uh, I think it would be very susceptible to politicization just because it's just another government entity. Um, If you look at the names, there's no obvious um, indication so far that it's been politicized. But, you know, in the future, that's definitely a concern. Um, I mean, the other issue is, well, how are they actually going to go about hiring people? Uh, Will they be able to do it independently? Um, And particularly, as I mentioned, the senior grades, uh, which have always been politicized, and it just seems very hard to conceive of a scenario whereby the Federal Council appoints a a director general somewhere in uh, in an important ministry, and then the political blocs just stand by and and watch idly. So I I think it's definitely a, a key concern. On tribal re- allegiances, I think it's a very good point to, to illustrate the fact that allegiances shift all the time, and that's the case with um, patronage networks across the country. So even ones that are linked to um, the payroll, those that are linked to uh, contractual corruption, um, people shift their allegiances all the time, and the tribes are you know, one of those groups that often do that, and we've seen during the protests some tribes... Um, allying with the protests others actually very recently allied with the security forces to contain um, uh, the violence and um, so I, I think it really depends you know all of these groups what they're really mo- motivated by um, some of them i think are motivated purely by uh, say capture of state resources i think others and i think this is where the political economy uh, framework doesn't really touch on this so much, is There's a lot of sort of religious motivation as well. I mean, there's a lot of idealism that exists um, amongst these political actors about what kind of country they want, and often that's not that hasn't got something that's not directly about uh, capturing state resources and and building sort of their financial empires. Uh, On SOE restructuring, I take your point entirely. So uh, I think the point is really just to try to break the the monopoly that these SOEs have and try to create space for public for private sector um, activity. And what we've seen is a lot of young people are very keen to engage in, in, in startups and to engage in private sector um, uh, uh, work. And they're just being crowded out by these massive you know, um, SOEs. And um, so I, I think the first step really, as I said, is to be very transparent about how many people exist within these SOEs, how much um, debt they're um, accruing, And that may create pressure in the long term for the political um, actors that control these SOEs to take a step back and to to really create more space for others to to, to join the
2: market. So very quickly, I mean, uh, mean, the issue of uh, um, hiring freeze is usually uh, one of the measures that the World Bank and the IMF uh, recommend in order to, uh, as part of the package of reforming uh, uh, uh public wages and uh, and in the case of Iraq, it, it has been essential because it's the numbers of employment it's it's the quantity rather than uh, the level of wages that was uh, more the problem and that was increasing exponentially. only now in eighteen nineteen you, you have we have seen major increases in um, basically the level of wages uh, commensurate also. Uh, with uh, with an increase in numbers, so so obviously, this discarding uh, the need uh, the um, this conditionality, I would say, uh, whether you have an IMF program or not, is only making your uh, uh, wage bill even more unsustainable. I mean, probably now, um, and in an environment where oil prices uh, could be uh, either stabilizing or could come under pressure, depending on what. If if you look at 2020, I mean, we're not. Very bullish on, on global growth and on demand for oil then then naturally uh, the problem is that we see also a lot of volatility in nominal GDP in oil exporting countries. so your wage GDP becomes even uh, even bigger <laughs> than uh, th- th- uh, than it is now, and today it is actually one of the highest among emerging market uh, countries uh, so if you were to uh, go again into a stabilization program. Uh, now, that will have to come uh, to be put on the table again and and how to uh, bring uh, the wage bill down by uh, reestablishing a hiring freeze, which has its political uh, its political and political economy uh, constraint. I think the other problem with uh, with uh, with Iraq, and correct me if i'm uh, I'm wrong, Ali, but I think this is a problem across the region, is uh, an, is a very rudimentary and underdeveloped system of uh, um, payroll management. Uh, so uh, I'm sure uh, your experience in the public sector tells you this, so uh, we are unable to know how many uh, employees we have in the central government in the state owned enterprises, how it is evolving soldiers, uh, the those reg-
9: employees are exactly
2: are the regulations uh, governing i mean short term contracts so so that also needs to be uh, to be uh, um, uh, to be uh, put forward as part of the broader civil service reform. Uh, uh in addition to the meritocratic kind of civil service recruitment that adds competit- uh, competitiveness and transparency uh, 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 to the um, uh, to the system so it's a, it's a really um, i mean hiring fees is only one component i think should be it should come with all these uh, uh, other um, other elements
3: just three things I, I, I don't think iraq is a failed state I think it's a weak state, and I think it's been designed deliberately to be weak. Mm. I think it's a successful state for the politicians who run it, and and it's it's failing to deliver. Um, on the United Nations, I surely have been guilty of this myself. That, that if you don't have an answer, bring in the UN, but the UN um, <coughs> has failed in Iraq. I think the Oil for Food uh, program. Uh, delegitimized the United Nations in the eyes of the Iraqi population who had to suffer under its its, its issues. I noticed that the Secretary General's special representative uh, briefed the Security Council today, and she said, Iraq's democracy is in peril. I think that's a direct quote from her. But the United Nations is only as strong as coherent as the Permanent Five representatives want it to be. They – lost interest in, in Iraq after the invasion of Kuwait, and that's where the orphan food scandal came from. And I see no evidence that any of them, the United States, China, Russia, France, or Britain, have that much at stake in Iraq that they would they would empower the, the UN to intervene with any vigor. But I do notice also that demonstrators want the UN to take a larger role, so I'm not ruling it out. I just wonder what utility it would be. And finally, the point about the sykes Pico um, uh, the, I think the vast majority of Iraqis, with one notable exception, are deeply committed to the territorial integrity of the state. That exception, obviously, is, is the Kurds in the north. They, from '91, have been given quite a large amount, quite rightly, of, of autonomy from Baghdad. That autonomy was negotiated with the 2005 election, with 2005 constitution. But then when you look at the system, That the two dominant parties in the north have built—the Kurdistan Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan—it looks remarkably similar in its corruption, repression, and lack of representation uh, to the the system in south central. So I don't think more less ethnically or religiously diverse units of organisation are the solution.
0: does anybody have an answer to Bill Law's question as well about how the different protest movements in different parts of the ah, Middle East and whether
2: well it influences, is it being influenced by
3: others? Well, I, 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 it was, it's good to see uh, the, the Lebanese being driven by the Iraqi example. Um, if only they could come out in as large a numbers as the Iraqis. But um, <laughs> I, I don't have an answer to you. I was rifting on that in my mind. Uh, and one is the, the Three post-civil war states, uh, with still the, the spectre, the trauma of that violence overshadowing them, and clearly played up by the ruling elites. Uh, three states that didn't mobilise, engage in the 2011 Arab Spring, and so the, you could see you could see this movement as 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 being mobilised around a similar set of um, grievances to the Arab Spring. Demographics, the demographic bulge is obviously comparable. But where I run out of, of, of comparative, comparative frameworks, clearly uh, Iran, which I didn't touch on, has, as, as, as the Iranian protests have seen to so their cost, are very coherent, especially after the Green Revolution, repressive structure. Lebanon doesn't, inside the state, and the militias have yet to show their teeth. And the Algerians are trying, as far as I understand it, which isn't very far, to manage the popular protests without resort to barbarity yet.
2: I mean if I may, may, may add I mean uh, my Lebanese perspective uh, is obviously um, I I think the there are some commonalities and similarities in terms of the, some of the drivers of why people are going on the street but uh, but but obviously in Lebanon it is uh, a financial crisis it's not about only a failed delivery of services it is a one of the most dangerous financial crises uh, that the country is uh, is witnessing um, and and there is a complete uh, loss of uh, confidence in the ability of those who are governing in basically uh, charting a way out of the crisis uh um and the uh, the longer it is taking uh, um with w- and with whatever it is exacting on the population daily in terms of losses whether uh, the inability to get their money from the banks or uh um uh, basically now shedding uh, uh of 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 uh Employment across the private sector, uh, fear, of course, for uh, the uh, uh, parallel market with almost 50 percent of the value of the pound, uh, uh, or not yet 50, but 38 uh, uh, percent to 40 percent uh, being um, impacting their uh, purchasing power. So so there is this fear that uh, uh, the, um, the political uh, ruling elite has been uh, completely oblivious <laughs> and deaf- <laughs> Uh, and uh, with no response in sight, uh, people's uh, people have are only resulting to, the, uh, to to the street as a way of expressing themselves. Uh, however, if you look from afar um, and you don't realize that each country has its own political uh, and local dynamics, you could uh, feel that at least uh, the way they are manifesting itself, uh, the, uh, uh they look similar. Um, but obviously, uh, uh, the Lebanese uh, ability also to draw on the diaspora uh, uh, has, has been also a, a, key, uh, a, key, a key element that has um, uh, mobilized more momentum and support through social media, uh, um, uh, not only in Lebanon, but also in the, in the diaspora. And I think that's a, a very specific uh, uh, peculiarity of Lebanon.
1: Could I just briefly make two points. Yeah. One is that uh, two prime ministers have resigned as a result of the street protests, and the second is
3: that the call, certainly in Lebanon, uh, I hear uh, uh, an echo of what's going on in Iraq. That is, an end to the sectarian nature of the politics. That yeah. this structure doesn't mm-hmm. work. Yeah, we We're had a discussion there of this morning,
2: morning. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, this is how. Uh, a lot of people uh, are trying to portray the uh, the protests in Lebanon as uh, uh, as they're not sectarian based, and it's true to a large extent. But I think it's not it's not completely devoid. Devo- I think we see, particularly outside Beirut, a lot of manifestation of uh, sectarian agenda still. Uh, uh, also, the fact that uh, I mean, those in, in on the streets are are actually we are seeing counter protests <laughs> that are defending the Zaim. Uh, uh um in power or uh, or um, or the position of the zaim uh, with or against whatever is being uh, advanced uh, in, in terms of or being contested uh so yes i mean it, we are it is about issues based politics increasingly given given the scale of the economic and financial crisis uh but i think uh, to say that there's no more sectarian agendas in it I, I, I think it's stretching it too far.
0: Okay, uh, we have eight minutes, so we're going to do two questions, answers, and then we'll close. Yes. <coughs> Thank you. Um, firstly, thanks very much, Ali. I really enjoyed the uh, report. I thought it was very empirically and data rich. Um, and my question is really to anyone who cares to answer it, um, and I feel like I have to a- ask it that. Um, So we've heard a lot about what is wrong with the public sector, and so what, if any, form of leverage does the international community actually have? And if it does, what is it doing (laughs) to change any form of corruption, whether it be employment-based or contract-based corruption? And then just this question. Okay. Yes.
8: Yes. Uh, uh, thank you, Ali, for excellent paper. But uh, let me just ask uh, uh, a question about uh, some of the figures that you've given. You, you've said that um, spending by the state-owned uh, enterprises over I don't know what period you're you're covering. I think it's about over well over uh, a decade. Uh, Thirty-one billion dollars. Uh, uh, is that what do you define as spending? Uh, so it's that I think is not uh, very clear in the paper and uh, here. Um, now this takes us to the question of this crowding out uh, the public sector crowding out. I don't see any uh, sign of public sector the public sector as such or state-owned enterprises, them- uh, productive enterprises, not very productive at the moment, crowding out. The private Mm -hmm. sector—it's the whole of the government activity, uh, yes—and the inability and the hurdles that are put in the face of the private Mm -hmm. sector—that's a different matter. But the state, and I think I sort of connect with the question about privatization there—that in fact privatization is Mm -hmm. a different issue from uh, empowering the private sector. Mm
0: And just this lady here, yeah, you wanted to speak. And then I yeah, won't take right. any more
5: questions. <laughs> um, so I don't have an economic background. I come from a legal background. So this is a question out of curiosity. Do you think that Iraq has been open to foreign direct investment? And if not enough, would this have led, has has this led to economic isolation which has also consequently led to more, to these um, sectarian militias and political parties staying in power? Or would that, like would foreign investment encourage reform by the demands it, well, it needs a regulatory framework that works and contracts that are, um, you know, abided by accountability and so forth.
1: Mm. Uh, so on whether the international community has leverage over public sector reform, I think the experience of the IMF would probably say no. Um, you know, the standby arrangement that existed was supposed to uh, reduce, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, public sector spending is a proportion of GDP, and I don't think that really happened. Uh, wh- what I would say is that the international community can provide better technical assistance, which is, I think, the, the route that it's really uh, opting for now. So the World Bank looking at um, public financial management reform, providing the technical know-how to enable Iraqis to, to go about doing those reforms. But beyond that, I think it's very difficult to force Iraqis to, to do anything. Uh, <laughs> On the issue of um, state-owned enterprise, I take your point. So I think the 31 billion, um, what it means is that, if you take into consider into consideration the oil, uh, state oil companies as well, the kind of spending that um, is afforded to them as a proportion of the budget, uh, it comes to about 31 billion. So um, the the state budget, um, let's say, is around 100 billion a year. Um, of that, 31 billion is spent in total on uh, state-owned enterprises' salaries. Um, granted the proportion, a lot of that goes to the oil industry, you know, very high you know, in intensive spending, but uh, that's where the, 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 figure comes from, whether it uh, crowds out, um, the private sector. I think probably a better way to put it is that there's a potential for the private sector to thrive. Um, there, there's infrastructure that is readily available through the SOEs that could be utilized to grow the private sector um so far i mean we've been talking about this for years and years is the potential to um either engage in public private partnerships for these soes um or to privatize them all i think there's potential to um, you know uh stimulate the private sector through these soes the fact that they've stayed where they are um on the public sector uh, payroll um you know huge amount of spending and, and debt accumulated um for them um, really means that the, the the private sector just doesn't really have a chance to um, to grow in the way that it really can.
2: Uh, very quickly on uh, on the leverage, I think. I mean, in the case of, of international community, in the case of Iraq, it didn't also work because at some point, of course, Iraq, I mean, was helped by by, by the oil price and its resources, and uh, but in other co- in other countries, I mean, um, uh, international community whether under IMF program or under World Bank uh, development policy loans uh, that we have seen in the region, have contributed a lot to public sector reform and modernization. Um, I mean, uh, um, obviously, uh, the political economy plays a role. Like, if you look at Tunisia, uh, there, there has been a limit to, to, to how much you can take uh, wage bill reform, uh, given also the, uh, the relative uh, power of uh, trade unions. Uh, in the country, uh, I mean, in, in, in Tunisia, the UGTT has um, has played a very big uh, an, a role in t- in terms of slowing down or or, or changing the course of uh, um, uh, of public sector reform under IMF programs. But uh, but it certainly can be uh, very well utilized because it it creates discipline. Uh, and and if if as Ali said. Uh, married with the type of institutional regulatory reforms <coughs> uh, that are passed as part of these uh, um, uh, adjustment programs uh, then you can go far in terms of uh, um, of improving uh, the, um, reducing rigidity in the budget improving public sector payroll management uh, uh, enhancing uh, competitiveness. Uh, um uh, and digitizing a lot of the of the of the public sector, so we have seen across the world uh, um, uh, cases where the international community has been successful um, has uh, levered, has been uh, successful on FDI I mean the FDI issue is uh, it's like a chicken and an egg problem, right if you don't have the right business environment, <laughs> regulatory uh, um, competitiveness, contestable framework for competition it's very hard for fdi to come in i mean uh, the latest number i think for the first uh, half of this year is uh, um, and even last year is that as a percent of gdp uh, iraq doesn't get more than 1 to uh, um, percent of gdp of fdi for a country as big as iraq this is really very low um, compared to the region it's 9 to 10% uh, at some point in egypt in Saudi, uh, I mean, now it is much lower than than before. So, so the potential should be much higher for a country like Iraq. But again, usually uh, you need this uh, contestable environment to create at the FDI, and FDI usually uh, start enhancing and improving the contestability and the competitive competition, etc. So, uh, but you need to start first by your own uh, um, uh, sort of local-based reform. I'm not sure it missed. I think that's the objective of the next phase of reform. I, I, I would hope that, that if, if at all, uh, these protests lead to uh, the political uh, sort of uh, uh, reforms that, that, uh, that young people are aspiring for and there is a consensus on it. Eventually, I think the economic agenda will have to, draw, to, to be a top priority and, as part of it, such, such type of reforms.
0: No. Wow. Okay. So, on that note, um, just I want to say thank you to everyone. It's been super interesting. Um, So, if you can just give them a round of applause. (laughs)